0: Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On June 16th, eight storytellers from York, Lancaster County, Philadelphia, Virginia, and Denver shared their stories with our audience. Our theme for the evening was pet peeves. We heard stories about things that get on people's nerves, ways that people get on others' nerves, and even a story about a pet who was constantly peeved. In the end, Brad Jennings won with his story about anxiety over finding enough space in the overhead compartment on an airplane. Here's Brad.
1: Okay, so my story tonight isn't about a pet peeve of mine. Uh, It's about something that I do that probably ticks off a lot of other people. And that is when I'm at the airport, I will run and shove and nudge and jockey my way to the front of the line so that I can beat everyone else onto the airplane and just hearing that some of you are probably a little bit peeved off at me already but let me explain i am terribly entirely irrationally hopelessly terrified that there will not be any available bin space for my stuff when i get on the plane me and roly have been together for more than 20 years roly is my black roller suitcase and we go everywhere together he takes care of my stuff and i take care of roly and he does not get checked he does not get tossed in the cargo hold like like garbage. He does not. He rides with me, safely stowed overhead in the comfort of the cabin. But the possibility that the bins may be full by the time that I get on the plane fills me with so much anxiety, I have to take medication. And I have to get to the gate two hours early, just so I can stare down the gate agent, because the second that she calls my boarding group, I need to be on that plane. If not, I run the risk of a bin shortage. And you know what that looks like. You've all seen that. The guy who saunters onto the plane at the very last minute with his Starbucks and his giant bag full of who even cares, right? And then he sees that all the bins are already closed and that smug look just like melts right off his face. Oh no. And then it's like, sir, we're gonna have to check that bag. And yeah, no, no, I I can't, I just cannot. But um, I understand that that rubs some people the wrong way. So. A few years ago, I was traveling on business with two other colleagues, and we were flying uh, from California back to Baltimore, and Keith and I would be sitting together, and our other colleague, John, uh, was somewhere else on the plane. Now, whoever booked our our travel um, decided it would be a great idea if Keith and I sat in row 10. Row 10, are you serious? Do you know what the bin space situation looks like for the people in row 10? After all these bastards in row 30 and 25 and 20, jam all their needless crap up in there, there's, there's no room for row 10. Row 10 doesn't have a prayer. And row 10 doesn't even get called by its name. It's lumped in with something called all remaining rows. All remaining rows. So they call all remaining rows, as undignified as that is, right? And I leave Keith and John in the dust and I race to the front and I'm pushing and shoving my way in and the whole time I'm game planning in my head. First available bin. First available bin. And sure enough, I get on the plane, I look back at row 10, no bin space back there. But oh, right here, over row three, there's a spot. So I put Rolly up there and I go back to my seat. This woman in row three, uh, she jumps up and she starts screaming at me. She goes, hey, hey, you can't put your bag here and then go sit back there. What's wrong with you? And I'm thinking like, is that, is that right? Is that a rule? Can you, can you really not do that? She goes. You're an asshole. That spot belongs to whoever's sitting in this seat. And she pointed to the seat next to her. Um, And a few moments later, we found out whose seat that was. It was John's. When John got on, there was no bin space for his bag. So John had to walk all the way to the back of the plane, struggle to store his bag back there, and then had to walk against traffic all the way back to the front of the plane. And when he finally got back to his seat, the woman goes, there is no room for your bag because some guy put his bag there and went and sat back there and I, he got to get kicked off this flight. So she jumps up, turns around and, and looks at me again and goes, you're getting kicked off and she gets the flight attendant and she says, so a guy put his bag here and he sat back there and I do not feel comfortable with this. You need to get him off this flight. And the, and the, the flight attendant goes, who, which guy? And, and she jumps up and points at me and I look down at the floor. Not I make eye contact, but when I look back up, he's opened up the bin and he's pulling Roly out and checking it out, and I'm like, no, you can't be serious. Is Roly really getting kicked off this plane right now? But he pushes him back in and he says, when we get to Baltimore, I'll watch for who takes the bag and then we'll deal with this there. Now I'm not worried about the whole bins thing anymore. My biggest fear is that I've broken on some sort of international flight law I didn't know about. Right before we take off, Keith sends a text to John. It's like, John, that's Brad's bag, and he's really sorry, and John sends back, it's okay, but she's really mad. About two hours into the flight, John gets up to use the restroom, and he stops by our seats, and he says, yo, that lady has been talking about your bag this entire time, and the guy says, we're going to deal with it in Baltimore, so... so we came up with a plan. When the plane landed, I would go to the back of the plane and get John's bag, John would stand up, pull my bag out from right over his seat. Look the woman right in the eyes and say, it was my bag the whole time, sucker. And uh, except for the sucker part, that's pretty much how it went down. So John pulls the bag down. The woman is stunned and silent, like for the first time all day. The flight attendant did not care. But the three of us Walked off that flight, walked up the jetway, like three across in slow motion, like we just pulled off some sort of Ocean's Eleven ship. Now, if you think that that little episode put the fear in me to relax a little bit, maybe show some courtesy in the whole bin situation, well, (laughs) you don't know me at all. Just a few months after that happened, I was traveling with my family, um, and I left my wife and two small children to fend for themselves while I raced up and and tried to box out a woman who was traveling with an infant and a toddler just to be able to get onto the plane ahead of them. But seriously, if you had seen all the crap they were trying to carry on with them, thank you.
0: Brad earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November, a familiar space for him, as Brad was our very first Grand Slam champ back in 2016 and has emceed the Grand Slam every year since. Next up is a story from Summer Gonter, who shared a story about her angry old man cat named Bill. So I'm actually gonna tell a story
2: for Bill. This is Bill. And the first thing Bill would like you to know is that he's not a cat. Bill would be very upset if you think of him as a cat. That's what really upsets him. See, Bill is, Bill is actually an old man trapped in a cat's body. I first met Bill about 16 years ago on a very cold night when he walked into my now, my now husband, then boyfriend's apartment and announced that he was going to live there. But it turns out that Bill actually didn't like men or being inside. So when I wasn't living there, when I was going home, Bill went on a little cat path of destruction and ripped the apartment apart, uh, knocked everything over, broke lamps. He tore up the carpet underneath the door to the point where you could actually see the plywood underneath. He jumped off the second floor balcony twice. But at that time, we still thought he was a cat, so he did live, which was fortunate. And we thought maybe he was lonely, so when we moved in together and I brought my cats, we thought, oh, it would work out. But He also didn't like other cats, Um, so that was an issue. And he actually tortured my cat, Lucy, to the point where we had to put her on Prozac. We tried to put him on Prozac, but it just made him meaner. So Lucy was on Prozac, and when our older male cat died, um, we actually had to get Lucy another cat, a buffer cat. Um, And that's when I realized that we were stuck with Bill, and we had to figure out how to make this work. And I realized at that point that Bill was that older male relative that just was there, and, and you had no idea how to make it work, but you had to live with him somehow. And that's when I started think of, thinking of him as the old man trapped in the cat's body. And maybe because I watched a lot of Sabrina the Teenage Witch as a teenager, but it really made a lot more sense to me to think of him this way. Um, And I started cataloging his old man traits. So Bill had arthritis, a lot of arthritis, and he had a limp, he had a bad paw. But when he wanted something, his bad paw became so much more prominent, uh, he would hold it up, look at my bad paw. Um, And he really was very obsessed with the weather because it did make his arthritis hurt more, but it also kept him out of his garden, which he really liked to spend time in. He loved the garden. And so anything like rain or wind or snow, oh, wind was the worst of it. Wind was like a personal attack and if he could have shaken his fist at the wind, he would have. Besides his garden, he really loved this tacky old blanket that we had. It was a John Deere yellow and green fleece thing that thatched absolutely nothing in my house. But we couldn't get rid of it because it belonged to the old man over there, you know? So that was Bill's blanket. Bill only had three teeth, so he ate stew. And breakfast could not be late. If breakfast was late, he would wake me up by tapping me on the shoulder with his claws out. That was the part about being a cat he did like. Um, he also really hated strangers, and he didn't like to go to bed late. So if we had parties, around 10 p.m., Bill would announce that the party should be ending by coming down the stairs and just starting to look at everyone, you know, just to announce that you should be wrapping up. But by midnight, if you were actually still there, Bill would go down to the living room and just sit himself down and huff and stare. And you better be getting your coat and getting out the door because Bill did not like staying up late. Bill had a lot of medications as well. Uh, He had a a twice-a-day medication schedule, and only about two people besides me could medicate him. My husband was not one of those people. So when I left town and my husband stayed home, I still had to book a sitter, a nurse, if you will, to come in and take care of Bill. We lost Bill this past December. Uh, He lived with us for 15 years, Um, but he had such a great big personality. When I started to think of him as human, he started to treat me as if I was human too. And thinking of him as that little old man in a great, in a cat body really made so much more sense to me than having him be just a cat. Thank you.
0: Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Keith Bailey. Keith shared his story with a bit of a twist, how his driving is a pet peeve for others.
3: After 48 years of, of life, I've discovered the origin of pet peeves and it's birthdays. It's like every candle is either the strengthening order the, or the addition to another pet peeve and every time you got to blow out those flames it's like you are just fanning the flames of your own pet peeves. And the pet peeve I want to talk about today, because I have many, is driving and primarily how other people drive just drives me insane. Last weekend, I'm coming over Eisenhower, through Eisenhower Tunnel, on the way down into Frisco. My brother-in-law, Doug, is driving. He has a a gold Toyota Tundra with a V8 in it that he drives with a vengeance. One foot in the gas tank and then a club on the brake. We're coming down and, and Eisenhower is like a toboggan run that people take as a challenge. And Doug is no different. We're flying down this pass and we're coming up on traffic and I'm sitting in the front seat and I'm just bracing myself for the adventure. And then at the very last minute, Doug does what so many people do. He just crushes on that brake and turns me into a science experiment because my butt lifts out of the seat. And for a moment, the harness holds me and I'm suspended like an astronaut in midair. And I look over at Doug. I'm like, dude, do you hate your brakes or something? He said, no, I just got new rotors. I said, well, it looks like you're trying to break those as well. Another friend of mine, Stephanie, the multitasker had, past tense, a beautiful, silver, convertible Toyota. after a very short period of time of just bad driving, we started calling it Old Tinny. And Stephanie would multitask. She'd be putting on her makeup, she'd be smoking a cigarette, she'd be on the cell phone, she'd be driving with her knees, and just running over the most random things. And it reminds me of that joke of, my grandfather died peacefully in his sleep. I can't say the same for the passengers in his car. Because there's some moment, it's a matter of time before she would have killed any of us. And if you're that driver that slows down before you get to the green light and then holds your brakes through the green light, know that I'm behind you yelling and screaming and gnawing on my steering wheel. The other thing I've also learned is oftentimes what bothers us as a pet peeve is most likely inherent to us as well. It applies. I have a confession to make. I'm a terrible driver, according to my mother and my wife. My mother, I remember when I started driving, she would sit next to me, she would clutch her, uh, her purse with all of her life's belongings in it, hand on the door, other hand poised, ready to open the door as if I were to make contact with something. She would bound out at the last minute and save herself. You know the whole adage of, if the elevator drops, you should jump before it ends up hitting the bottom floor and you'll survive? She would also, with both feet, hit the imaginary brake. And I I can sympathize with her. I'm sure we all start out as terrible drivers, but I consider myself a good driver now. Unless you talk to my wife, who calls me when I have my rages, Mr. Wheeler. Now, Mr. Wheeler is the, uh, the alter ego of Goofy in a 1950 cartoon that came out called Motor Mania. If you haven't seen it, you've got to check it out. He's got two personalities. One is Mr. Walker, and the other one's Mr. Wheeler. Mr. Walker is as nice as can be and shakes your hand. He'll take his jacket off and lay in the puddle so the ladies can walk across. But Mr. Wheeler, he gets fine. Oh, he just becomes oh so aggressive and so angry, which is what I do. Mainly because I drive a Prius, which I'm not sure if that says a lot about my personality. But I am a slave to the teat of aerodynamics. My car has snowballs. I just have to plan for what is possibly coming up ahead. And to my wife, that tailgating makes her sound like she's anime. You know, she's all "Ah, ah, 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 ah." it makes me laugh. To this day, I've never rear-ended someone, but there's always room for that. But you know what, though, I, I, I truly believe that the problem isn't the the late breakers or the multitaskers or the the eunuch of uh, of automobiles, which is the Prius. It's independent thought and it's independent choice. That's the problem with driving. We all have our own ideas. And I believe that we're all acting with the best of intentions. But none of it is is coordinated. We're not coming together. We're all sitting our own little bubbles of, of metal and steel making decisions. And what frightens me is that the majority of people on the street that are driving out there today are afraid to be there, or overconfident to be there. And that is really dangerous. For me, I am really looking forward to the day. of Full automation. Bring it on, baby. Oh, give me full automation, or give me death, and I'll probably kill myself driving before that ever comes along. But here's the thing with full automation, and it's not the, 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 uh, the, the go-to of, oh, I can sit and be on my phone the whole time and I can eat a cheeseburger while I get you know ushered around by artificial intelligence. For me, that is not what I'm most excited about. This is what I'm most excited about, stoplights, okay? We put men on the moon, planes have been flying autonomously for, for years. SpaceX just launched, right? Fully automated from launch to docking. Not a man touched it, but yet in our society, stoplights act autonomously and with vindiction because you approach up to the green light and suddenly it turns red, and this is when I chew my steering wheel. It's when that light turns red and I stop because the law says so, and then not a single car comes across. It grinds my gears. So pray for full automation so all of us can stop being Mr. Wheeler and be more like Mr. Walker. Thanks everybody,
0: that was a ton of fun. All the winners from this year's Open Mic Story Slam events will return to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York. Updates on our events are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. Big thanks to our 2020 sponsor, KBG Injury Law, whose generous support is making this season possible. We hope to see you virtually or on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Carla Wilson of Wilson Media Services. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson. You can learn more at wilsonmediaservices.com.